Hello and welcome to Coronavirus The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and for the past month in the happy position of being able to bring you the latest insights, expertise and analysis on coronavirus direct from UCL's extraordinary range of researchers. And we really have been giving you the whole story. Intensive care, tracking the virus, education impact, exit strategies and those episodes are all still there for you to listen to. Details of how to get to them coming up later. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week, so we're asking the question, how is coronavirus affecting our mental health? I'm joined, remotely of course, by experts from different quarters of UCL, psychiatry, psychology and behavioural science, to discuss how this virus has impacted the lives of frontline staff, vulnerable groups and you, our listeners. So let's introduce the guests for this week. In this episode, I'll talk to Dr. Daisy Fancourt, Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology in the Institute of Epidemiology, someone who started off life as a psychoneuroimmunologist. That's the science of how different social factors affect the body. Today, she finds herself, amongst other things, conducting a large-scale study to measure the impact of the virus on the population's mental health and loneliness. Also with me, Dr Joe Billings, Clinical Associate Professor, Division of Psychiatry in the Faculty of Brain Sciences. She studies PTSD, trauma, resilience and the mental health of well-being of high-risk occupational groups, making her the perfect guest to discuss the impact on those working on the front line during this crisis. And last, but absolutely not least, Dr Rochelle Burgess, who's a lecturer in global health in the Institute for Global Health Faculty of Population Health Sciences. Rochelle is a leading community health psychologist specialising in community-based approaches to health and we'll be talking about solutions both here in the UK and around the world. So we were really interested in what's going to happen to people's mental health across this pandemic. There have been some studies of previous epidemics looking at quarantine, suggesting that people who go into quarantine it can have quite bad effects on their mental health. But this is obviously a situation now with COVID-19 that is completely unprecedented globally. And we thought it was absolutely crucial that we know how people are being affected psychologically and socially so that we understand the impact of measures like lockdowns. But we also know what kind of support people need for their mental health. And we're also able to give more targeted guidance on how people can stay well at home. So we started running the COVID-19 social study uh, a few days before lockdown came in. We were just in time to capture some baseline data from people. And to date, we've had over 90,000 participants and people are taking part every week. So we've got a fantastic uh, longitudinal data set building up. Uh, and what we're particularly trying to, to look at here is uh, what the risk factors are for poor mental health, what the trajectories are over time and what factors seem to be protective. Now, give us the big picture, first of all. Uh, what would you perhaps expect and what are your initial findings? Well, in terms of what we expect, the only data we've really had to go on are those previous epidemics that I mentioned. So I think initially there were hypotheses that mental health might get worse during lockdown. But actually, uh, we've also been considering other kinds of exposures. So there's a lot of literature on social isolation that suggests that if people don't have regular contact with others, this can have detrimental effects on things like anxiety, depression, stress levels. But in fact, what we're experiencing now is a completely new social phenomenon. It's quite different from regular social isolation in that instead of people gradually withdrawing from social engagement activities over a long period of time, this has been completely enforced and very abrupt. 
Uh, it's not something people have generally wanted to do. Um, but also instead of the world carrying on around people, everything has stopped, society has stopped. So we don't really necessarily have the same things like fear of missing out. So actually, in many ways, what we're experiencing is a bit more like incarceration or spaced expeditions where people end up being put into a situation um, for a length of time uh, and sort of really quite abruptly cut off from what's been happening around them. So we've sort of been hypothesizing based on some of these previous data, but our findings have actually gone against some of our hypotheses. So, for example, we found that in the lead up to lockdown, lots of people's mental health seemed to have got worse, perhaps because of the uncertainty of things. And in fact, in lockdown, it seems to have really plateaued at a higher level than normal. But we've seen a plateau and also some decreases in certain stresses, like worries about catching the virus or access to food. But that, of course, raises the question as to what's going to happen as lockdown is eased, whether we'll start to get better mentally as we can return a bit more to normal or whether things will actually get worse again as we have uncertainty. And is that why you're doing this really rather unusual thing, which is releasing results weekly? Yes, we were aware that there are a couple of different sort of aims with a study like this. One of the things we wanted to do is to almost provide a mental health dashboard about what is happening across the UK in real time. And particularly what's happening for certain groups that we might consider more high risk, like people who've already got a mental health diagnosis. So we're producing public reports every week that just give a day by day average um, across all of our responses. Uh, and because we've got such a large and very well stratified sample, we're able to look at what's happening over time in a really nice way. So as well as going out to the public, these also um, these data also go to Cabinet Office, to the government, to Public Health England, to the World Health Organization, and also to hundreds of organizations nationally who are trying to support individuals. But as well as that, we're doing much more rigorous and sophisticated statistical analyses of the data that are being submitted in the traditional way to journals for peer review, where we're really trying to look more at these predictors and risk factors and how things are varying over time for, for high-risk groups. Now, talk me a bit through those high-risk groups. Let's start actually at the other end. Who's doing well in this at the moment? The people who are doing well, and obviously we're using well in inverted commas here in that uh, this still might be worse than normal for many people, but the people who are doing the best seem to be adults over the age of 60, particularly people who are retired. And I guess we might hypothesise here that for these adults, there might be the, the least change to their day-to-day -day activities. Particularly, there'll be fewer worries around things like employment, um, and there might be fewer financial worries, but it also might be that these people are living uh, perhaps in a more financially settled way, in houses, perhaps with gardens, perhaps with partners or with family members. Uh, the people who seem to be doing the worst in terms of age are younger adults, so 18 to 29-year-olds, so particularly those people we think, including students, where their lives have been turned completely upside down and their usual patterns have been completely flipped around. And Daisy, is that also correlated with fears about catching the virus? Because if you're over 60, you're really quite worried about catching the virus. Whereas perhaps if you're in your early 20s, you're not that worried because you know that very few people have of your age have died from it. Yes, actually, I mean, I guess this is sort of the other way around from what you from the analyses I just mentioned. And that yes, uh, older adults, things have changed the least. And in terms of mental health, they seem to be doing the best but they are the ones who are most worried about catching the virus. Um, so we found that fears about catching COVID have dramatically decreased since lockdown came in, I guess because we all have felt safer at home. There was a slight blip increase last week, which is when discussions around the easing of lockdown started. Um, so it'll be interesting over the next few weeks to see how that develops as the chance of many people catching it actually does start to go up. 
But it's interesting that amongst young people who've got that lowest fear about catching COVID, we're still actually seeing they've got the worst mental health at the moment. So in other words, it's not just about worries about the virus. It's fascinating. Uh, and is there anything about fear of Zoom calls? I swear if I take another Zoom call, I may indeed go mad. <laughs> We're not sure yet, but we have been capturing data on how people are using their time in lockdown. So uh, things like screen time. Uh, so it'll be very interesting. We're starting to do analyses now to see how this is linked in over time with uh, changing trajectories of mental health. And indeed, things like uh, increased drinking. Yes, we've also captured data on health behaviours, so including things like diet, amount of food consumption, uh, smoking and alcohol. Our latest analyses on smoking are actually um, going against some of the early papers that came out suggesting that smoking was protective against catching COVID. And actually, we are seeing uh, very much that it is a risk factor. Finally, Daisy, I mean, this is an enormous study and a lot of people have taken part there's a there's a sense actually isn't there at the moment of everybody being in it together and as you mentioned you know it happened to everyone it it all stopped for absolutely everyone there wasn't that fear of missing out do you think you are going to see as things break down that being impacted on I think the concept of all being in it together is a massive myth. I mean, I saw a lovely uh, analogy which said we're all in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. And I think that's very much the case. We've actually had some analyses that are shortly to be published uh, where we've looked at adversities uh, during the COVID pandemic. So things like uh, losing your job, facing problems, paying bills, facing difficulties, accessing food, etc. And there is such a clear social gradient across this. So people who are wealthier, Um, And people who are higher educated, they're facing these problems a lot less um, than others. And this is uh, so vital for us to understand, because what we're finding is that even in the wake of measures that have come in, like furlough schemes and like some of the public reassurances, there is still this gradient and there is no evidence that it's getting smaller. In fact, it seems to be widening. So uh, uh, I think when we're looking at the inequalities aspect of this, I think COVID is actually exposing and exacerbating inequalities within our society at the moment. Just tell us now how quickly how we take part in the survey. It's very simple. You go to covidsocialstudy.org and it's a, it's a nice and simple 10 minute online survey that you get sent to your email address each week. And we're looking for many more participants. So we hope people will be encouraged to take part. So just as soon as you've heard this, off you go and do it. It's a great thing to do. Thanks very much, Daisy. So let me now turn to a key group that is particularly vulnerable, and that's frontline staff. Now, Joe, in a sense, a lot of the challenges frontline staff uh, are facing are the things that they've perhaps handled before, like the death of a patient or notifying loved ones, but not at this scale, nor in these circumstances. How might the particular context of coronavirus have an impact on their mental health and what sorts of adaptations to the kinds of self-care that frontline staff may have already been practicing could be made to help cope with the stress of working during the epidemic? Absolutely. Frontline healthcare workers are indeed very experienced at, at managing difficult situations. They're, they're used to, they're, they're highly trained in looking after severely ill people. They're, they're used to working with patients who might lose their life, dealing with families. But as you say, the scale of the current crisis is is very different, both in terms of the magnitude, the amount of people affected, but also the duration over which this is going on. Um, So there are several factors that are unique to 
to the current context that places additional stress on, on healthcare workers. Perhaps one of the most important things that we keep hearing about is the direct risk to healthcare workers' own health and well-being, and indirectly to their, their family as well. Um, so not only are our frontline healthcare workers dealing with the health of their patients, but they're very, very worried about their own health as well, and inadvertently affecting the health of their families. Healthcare workers are also struggling a lot with burnout and fatigue. A lot of hospitals uh, and wards have been quite short-staffed. If other colleagues have fallen ill and had to take time off work, or people are shielding because of their own health responsibilities, or even if they've got childcare or caring responsibilities, there's a limited workforce. So the people still at work are having to work harder and more hours. So that's impacting on healthcare workers too. And there's very interesting data as well from the SARS um, sorry, yes, from SARS and from Toronto, mm-hmm. where people who uh, the healthcare workers were particularly impacted as well if they had to go into isolation or they became ill themselves because they felt so guilty about other people left behind that they were having to work harder. So, it, you know, in all senses, you know, these things are piled on top of their shoulders. Absolutely. And it it's not just the kind of fear-based responses that the healthcare workers might be experiencing. There's a lot more sort of complicated emotions. Healthcare workers often feel guilty if they if they can't work or if they get ill themselves or if they feel that somehow the care that they, their usual care, the usual standards of care they would apply um, for their treatment of patients, they can't maintain those through no fault of their own, perhaps through inadequate resources or, or difficult levels with staffing. And these put staff in very different, difficult sort of ethical and moral dilemmas as well that can be really difficult for them and, and indeed lead to them feeling quite guilty. For lots of people they will working on the front line, they will want some sort of support. Tell us a bit more about, about that work uh, with your colleagues in the COVID trauma response working group. Yes, well, that work came about really because there's a, a small group of us who are clinicians and academics who, who work in trauma specifically. So myself and my colleague in the Division of Psychiatry, Dr. Michael Bloomfield, who's a consultant psychiatrist. And initially, we were quite well placed to respond to the demands from some of our local acute hospital trusts to provide guidance for staff around self-care. Um, and and from there, really, that, that work has been disseminated more widely across NHS England and across the country. And we're just really keen for that advice and of good evidence-based and trauma-informed guidance to be shared shared more broadly. Healthcare workers, as in NHS frontline healthcare workers, don't seem to be any more at risk of death from COVID than the general population. That's not true of uh, people in social care, where there's a very uh, much increased risk of death. But those figures, I guess, are not that reassuring still to frontline staff. No, I mean, there seems to be mixed uh, mixed information, really, about the degree to which healthcare workers might be at a greater, a greater risk. I mean, they certainly have potentially very high exposure, um, exacerbated by the fact that there's not always adequate personal protective equipment for them. So, so there definitely is a higher risk for them. And we know our colleagues in healthcare services and care homes have been very deeply affected by this. Joe, tell me in particular about one aspect of all of this, which I think is particularly distressing. You know, because of the nature of coronavirus, families are having to say goodbye to loved ones remotely. And some people aren't even getting that chance. And changes are also having to be made to 
funerals and memorial services. And lots of families are not able to grieve in the way that they normally would have done. How about some advice for them? How do they cope with loss under these dreadful circumstances? Yes, I mean, this is extremely difficult for for families who are put in this position and also for the healthcare workers who are sometimes having to step in and take the the role that a family member would normally have taken, perhaps being beside someone in their last moments of life. Um, So it's extraordinarily difficult for everyone involved. I mean, we know that social support is incredibly important in terms of managing grief. Um, That is difficult at the moment when people can't engage in their normal social support systems. They can't see people physically. They can't physically give someone a hug or sit down for a cup of tea with them. But nevertheless, things that people can do to stay in touch um, with family or friends remotely is really important to engage with the community and perhaps a community of people with shared experiences. We also know Uh, you know don't underestimate the importance of small gestures when people are grieving you know it's really important to still you know do what we can during this time and and it's not that we can't provide some kind of memorial service for people in terms of say a traditional funeral at the moment but these things are likely to be delayed so I think it's important that you know even if we can't have a sort of traditional funeral or memorial service at the moment that we we think about how we can put these things in place down the line. Very wise advice there. Now you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronas you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. So we started to talk there about families and communities. And Rochelle, I'd like to come to you now to talk about how people have been responding to coronavirus and to lockdown. How do the challenges and solutions associated with mental health during COVID-19 differ around the world? Ah, well, I mean, that's a really interesting question, because I think in reality, what's been suggested has not been that different around the world. Um, a lot of it has been oriented around what we know and around how we frame mental health to begin with. Um, Largely not really thinking about, not thinking as much about the sort of social structural pathways that might drive people to experience distress. And so because of that, our solutions are focused on largely on the psychological, um, trying to increase people's access to relational resources, social capital, those types of coping through contact, obviously distant contact now, but, you know, trying to connect people either through online apps or um, telecenters for talking therapies and that kind of support. And that is really helpful in a lot of ways and a lot of instances. Um, But I think personally, when I, when I think about sort of the, the experiences of the communities that I've worked with around the world in terms of how their mental health challenges were sort of developed long before COVID. These big sort of socio-structural inequalities that COVID has reminded us of have always been there. Um, So poverty and the inability to feed your children is something that is a reality for millions, if not billions of people around the world. And it always has been. 
And with COVID now, more and more people have that as their reality. And so one of the things that always strikes me is how do we get our mental health responses to match the full gamut of pathways to experience mental distress? Um, so we have lots on how to do this um, in terms of psychological distress, but not so much about the environments where that distress is sort of happening. In other communities, we tend to see uh, families come together as as large groups, intergenerational groups. That's much less common uh, in the UK. Is that a route to better coping or or not? Well, I think it, it ties back um, a little bit to um, something that Daisy said, sort of trying to highlight that it sort of depends on where you started before COVID happened. So you could be in an intergenerational family, but if that family doesn't have resources to cope with the increased social stressors, then the family doesn't necessarily equate to um, increased well-being if that family has increased needs that are are sort of worsened by, by sort of the social and economic impacts of the COVID crisis. So I think ultimately, if we're thinking about solutions um, to sort of mental health challenges and our concerns about potential increases in suicide and, and, and whatnot around the world, then it also calls for us to rethink what treatment might look like um, and sort of what complex interventions might be needed that pay as much attention to sort of psychological anxieties and stress, but also the the wider environmental realities that might also be driving that stress. Um, I've been working with colleagues at the Department of Public Health in Hertfordshire. And one of the things we've been talking about is how do we embed sort of pathways for people to access sociostructural resources during these times of crisis within the support that is offered for mental health. And so this might look like ensuring that um, if you have a mental health hotline or an, uh, um, an online program that's providing chat services for people who are experiencing distress, that all of those staff are given access to um, telephone numbers and locations of food banks or organizations that can help women who are isolated in homes where there is domestic abuse or sort of realizing that people will also want to respond to these environments, these structural things in their environments that might be adding to their risk. That's very interesting because I I, I think what we're seeing in so many different areas is that the change that might have occurred within two or three or maybe even five years is happening in a matter of weeks. And do you? it's very interesting you're talking about structural change to... Uh, mental health services and actually joe i wonder if that's something that you'd or uh, you'd thought of as well that actually we will emerge from this with a different view of mental health and how it ought to be treated and more diverse ways perhaps in which it could be treated joe what are your thoughts on that i mean one of the things we might hope as a legacy of this pandemic would be that greater recognition of mental health issues, um, particularly in the vulnerable groups that that Daisy and Rochelle have talked about. Um, And perhaps the best service we can do for our NHS colleagues and people in other high-risk occupational roles is provide the kind of mental health support 
um, the, the sort of systems and responses that we've been recognising they need now. Because although the, the scale and magnitude of this pandemic is unprecedented, these people do face difficult decisions and traumatic experiences day to day. So one of the things that might be good is if that can come out of this is perhaps that we we can offer more of that those services and that support to these people. Indeed, and may and do you think those services are going to look different? I think we we have to be very thoughtful about what are the right interventions for whom and at what point in time. I think initially in response to the pandemic, there was a, a sort of sort of urgent and admirable response to want to help people and provide psychological interventions. But actually, what most of the evidence shows is that in the early phases, people value sort of or want support around more basic human needs. People want to be able to get food from the supermarket, as we've seen. People want to be able to rest adequate sleep and feel safe um, for themselves and their their families but as these things progress people they have a a longer sort of impact on their lives and as the crisis starts to recede that's when people will start to process the experiences they've had and either make sense of them and integrate that in their into their life narratives or not and actually that's probably when we're going to see more mental health issues um, arising or people presenting to services is perhaps in the later phases of this. Rochelle, let me come back to you about the particular topic of inequality and how much it matters to mental health responses. What are your key recommendations for how particularly vulnerable communities can overcome their own mental health challenges? For me, I think that particularly vulnerable communities have been doing a lot of sort of self-mobilising for many, many years because they've been on their own for for many many years and so I think it's important for sort of communities and groups and families to recognize um, the ways in which that they have been promoting their survival so far and sort of try and um, harness those sort of those really great examples and and history of survival Um, in some intervention work that I've done in South Africa um, um, with women who have experienced complex trauma, the big, the heart of that intervention is trying to help women recognize that throughout their lives, despite having this narrative of of trauma that weaves throughout it, is that there's also a narrative of survival. And so, retelling their own stories through recognizing survival was a huge factor in sort of reducing um, their levels of depression at the end of the intervention. And I think that huge transition from uh, despair to to hope and possibility was a huge mediating factor um, for for women in that group. So I think communities should, you know, be celebrated and, and recognize the the strengths um, in the ways in which they've survived thus far. But also, there's something to be said about communities coming together to try and mobilize for additional support um, from political structures. Um, Inequality that we are seeing being reminded of now during COVID is, has very much always been there, you know, in in the UK before COVID um, hit, there were already 50% of UK families who did not have any savings, um, in preparation for things like this and, and, and the social determinants of health report, the 10 year update that professor Marmot put out sort of a couple weeks before things sort of went totally 
bonkers, for lack of a better word. I know the irony of that during this particular podcast is not escaping me. Um, but essentially um, reminding us that one third of families in the UK were one paycheck away from homelessness. And those realities were always there. And that is what made um, the impact of COVID so starkly unequal is because the world it came into was already unequal. And for us to really think about how we, um, as Joe said, sort of think along this sort of sort of trajectory of experiences of distress, the most important work that we can do to sort of bolster mental health comes quite early on in the creation of environments that enable people to have good mental health. Um, and in a lot of my work, I call that mental health enabling environments and mental health enabling communities where people have access to a range of resources that make good mental health possible. And part of that is relational resources. And um, Daisy didn't talk about this work, but a lot of her work on social prescribing and, and sort of getting people engaged with the arts and community is a huge part of sort of enabling good mental health to begin with. And those families that you were talking about um, before Vivian, sort of working within and living within sort of intergenerational families or the families that we create for people who might be separated from their families are a huge part of that. But material resources are also a really big part, um, you know, and um, so we think about um, these sort of stats that I said earlier around one in three working families being a paycheck away from homelessness, we, we need to come up with better um, economic policies to enable people to protect themselves and, and build that kind of protection that a lot of middle-class families have so that those worries don't, aren't a part of that aren't part of the equation. This is such a fascinating area and there's lots that we could talk about but unfortunately we've got limited time today so I want to uh, finish up by asking you each um, for a piece of advice because it's Mental Health Awareness Week that you could give to our listeners to help with their mental health during these extraordinary extraordinary times. Uh, Daisy I'm going to start with you. Purpose. I think purpose is a, such a fundamental part of people's mental health. And I've done uh, research with colleagues, um, including Andrew Stepter, professor at UCL, where we found that having a sense of purpose and meaning in life is associated not just with good mental health, but with better immune function, physical function, longevity, behaviours. So I think at this time, a lot of people's normal sense of purpose has been majorly disrupted. They might be on furlough from work. They might not be able to do lots of their usual activities. But I think finding a sense of purpose, whether that's taking up a hobby or setting yourself a project at home, or whether it's volunteering or getting involved in research like our study, just as a shameless plug, all of those things um, could be really Glad to be shameless. <laughs> I think all of those things are really good for people to maintain as good mental health as they can at this time. Well, my little bit of purpose is I've been doing a bouquet on Twitter every day from my garden. I've been so, loving seeing the photographs as they've come out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe, how about you? A bit of advice from you. Um, I think it's important to remember that these are extraordinary times. So whatever people are experiencing, whether they're feeling anxious and worried or low, or actually they're feeling fine and they're just getting on with things, th this is all normal. Um, it, you know, these are all normal responses to a very unusual life experience. Um, 
so we, you know, it, it's important to, to understand that and give ourselves the time and space to support ourselves and support each other. But if people are really struggling, if these difficulties are persisting, that the help is out there. We have really good um, primary care psychology services. We, we have the expertise out there to help people. So don't struggle in vain. And finally, if you would, Rochelle. It's hard to go last because those are both really good and also on my list. But um, I guess the final thing that I would say is I think it's really important to try and find a way to celebrate um, the microcosms of success. So if you can sort of look at your at each day, each moment closely and just give yourself a break and congratulate yourself on just sort of making it through, finding that that one thing. And, and actually, when you start to do that exercise, um, a lot of times you find more than just one thing. But it's really important to, in, in the midst of all of this doom and gloom, and there is a lot of it going around at the moment, that there are things that you can celebrate um, and to find them and to do that in the ways that you can with the people you care about. Um, but not possibly with yet another cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a really fascinating podcast. Thank you so much, all of you. Sadly, time to finish. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr Daisy Fancourt, Dr Joe Billings and Dr Rochelle Burgess. Don't forget, you can take part in that COVID-19 social study by going to covidsocialstudy.org. And if you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, there's support available. Details can be found in the description of this podcast episode and on the UCL website. And you can also follow at UCL Mental Health on Twitter for lots of helpful content. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. That's also where you can hear the podcasts we've already transmitted. Or you can visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.